This resource is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. Attend the next National Disciple-Making Forum by registering at Discipleship.org. The following audio comes from the 2016 National Disciple-Making Forum. The theme this year was Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. Discipleship.org brought together 10 disciple-making organizations all in one place, each organization hosting a different track. One of those 10 tracks was hosted by Disciple First Ministries with Craig Etheridge and his team. Here's audio content from Disciple First and their track called Transitioning a Church to a Disciple-Making Focus. Welcome back. Some of you are glutton for punishment. You uh, came back. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And um, uh, Did you have a good day yesterday? Good day. Uh, lots of good content and lots of good speakers. And so uh, I hope that uh, you're enjoying your time. This is a, a great, great conference, great time to be together. Um, okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to continue on this transition. How do you transition a church to become an intentional disciple-making church? And uh, we talked about the different moves that you need to make. Um, we talked yesterday about the move from uh, church models to Christ model, that Jesus is the is the model. By the way, that's going to be the discussion of the forum that we will do immediately after lunch in the chapel. So we encourage you to come to the chapel and be there. We'll have several guys on that panel uh, that will discuss that. So that's going to be good. Uh, then we talked about the move from uh, decisions to disciples. Spent a lot of time talking about that. And the end goal of what we're trying to get to is what I call a 3D disciple. Uh, which we define that disciple as someone who's devoted, who's developing, and who's deployed. And so that, that's the terminology that uh, I've been using. Uh, however, when you look at most definition of disciple, it fits very similar to other definitions. And so uh, I just my point in that session was you need to just be sure you have articulated a definition that, uh, you, that is helpful to you. Not just a, a nice sayings, but something that is helpful by which you can determine if you are actually making a disciple or not. Um, so it has to be functional. Um, so that's what we're trying to make. And then we talked about the process. So this is the product. The product, the end product of your church is to make disciple. Uh, and then we talked about the process, right? And we looked at the process that Jesus used. Go baptize obey <laughs> I like I like to not say teaching but teaching to obey and then multiply if y'all uh, watched the um, the forum last night we kind of got into some of these uh, discussions and um, so that was good um, and so I've we've come back and said this is explore Connect, grow is a terminology, and multiply. Multiply. There we go. And so these are the basic stages by which Jesus moved his disciples through all the way to the end, to multiplication. And so we talked about process, we talked about programs, and how Jesus, we overlaid Jesus' ministry onto this grid. 
You remember that? We spent quite a bit of time. I told you what I did in year one, two, three, and so on. We talked about um, how you evaluate your programming based on that. So that was a lot of nuts and bolts that we went through yesterday. Yes? Y'all remember any of that? All right. Still retained it from yesterday. Okay, very good. So now what we're going to do is we're going to just build off of that. If you uh, missed yesterday, then um, we, I encourage you, most of this stuff is in the book called Bold Moves that, I, that I, I have available. So if you want to get that, all that in detail and more is in that uh, resource. But hopefully at the end of yesterday, you were starting to kind of look at your programming if, if we were going to spend even more time, I would have you write down your programming, what's the primary purpose in each one. I told you that the 87% rule is that majority of it's probably going to land there. And so you have to say, okay, what do I need to thin out? What do I need to build in here? What do I need to build in here? And so on. Okay? So from a leadership standpoint, you need to say Christ is the model. Uh, the disciple is my product. This is my process. However, you want to articulate these phases. Feel free to, you know, use all E's or use all C's or, you know, you know how preachers do. We like to alliterate everything. So, uh, do whatever you want to, however you want to articulate them. This, this is the basic process that Jesus used. Um, and then the next thing you need to do is, and that's what I'm talking about today, is that you need to move from religious activity to relational investment. I would say the first three steps are um, are philosophical. Okay, the first three steps are very philosophical. What 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 do I understand a disciple to be? Jesus is my model. This his process is my process. These are philosophical things that you have to have nailed down before you go to work. But really the last four steps are very pragmatic. You know, they're, okay, what do I do? Uh, and when do I do them? So today we're kind of shifting into the more pragmatic side of uh, disciple making, okay? And we're talking about moving from religious activity to relational investment. I talked to a pastor one time. We, we were eating at a nice restaurant. He had asked me to meet him, and we were sitting down uh, talking about disciple making and I was sharing with him some of these principles. And he said, he asked me a question. He said, if I buy into what you're saying, what is going to be the difference in my church in the next six months? I thought that was a good question. What is going to be the difference in my church in the next six months if I buy into what you're saying here? And really what I, the short answer was this. I just said that disciple making changes the DNA of your church from being about activities and programs to being about relationally investing in people. And that is a substantial DNA shift from we're managing masses of people through big programs or we are about relationally investing uh, in people, life on life. You know, people matter to God and uh, uh, people matter to us. When you look at Jesus' ministry, he was... He was majorly engaged in personal relational investment. Uh, and, you know, this, you know, Putman talks quite a bit about that in relational discipleship. That's why he uses those terminologies because of the importance of relational investment. However, many pastors do not see that their job is to relationally invest in anybody. 
They think their job is to preach and to lead the programs and sit at the top of the org chart and cast vision and then retreat uh, to their office or to the golf course or some other place like that, but not to really relationally invest in people. Uh, I don't think that's a sustainable, um, long-term sustainable ministry because at the end of the day, people just want to know, do you care about them and are you investing in them? You know, you look at the Apostle Paul and he he relationally invested in people. Uh, I've got this verse up there on the screen, First Thessalonians 1, 4 through 8. It says, For we know, brothers, uh, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia, Achaia, and and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. In other words, look, you know the way we lived among you. You know how we invested in you. You know how we walked alongside you. And your life has been changed. And you've been so radically changed that everybody around here in the region is talking about you. You personally have been changed. He goes on to talk uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother cares for her own children. So being affectionately desirous for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you were very dear to us. We not only gave you the gospel, we gave ourselves like a nursing mother cares for her children. Also in chapter 2, verse 11, 12, he says, For you know, like a father uh, with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. In verse 17, he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, but not in heart, we endeavor more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. I mean, he's like, man, it's like a mother. We nurtured you like a father. We challenged you and we encouraged you. He said, like like two lovers were separated and we were torn from you, but not in our hearts and we couldn't wait to get back to you. I mean, this is this is a love relationship between a pastor and his church. Uh, this is not a guy who's just preaching on the weekends and can't be found during the week. This is a guy who has poured out his heart uh, to them. And um, I remember when when uh, our, our oldest daughter went off to college for the first time. And uh, man, we left her at uh, at school and... There was a bucket of tears cried between Dallas and Waco. And, uh, and I tell you what, it would be like, have you heard from Levath today? You know, if you talked to her yet, you know, when, when are we going to get to see her? And, you know, we couldn't wait, you know, to see her. Uh, that, that's the attitude that Paul had toward those that he invested in. And, um, in fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he says, for what is our hope? and joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. Wow. 
And when I think about what joy I have in ministry, it is you. You know, I've um, I've been a pastor now for over 20 years, a lead pastor for over 20 years. Worked in church now for over 25 years. So I'm getting long in the tooth, as they say. You know, Um, I tell you what, the greatest joy in ministry is not how many we had on Easter or what great sermon series I did that people really liked or you know writing this or or speaking at some place honestly those things kind of fade away I don't even really remember them that much um but I can call the names of people that I invested in that I walked with that I saw God do amazing things in their life and I know that when my ministry is gone that my influence will continue through their life and Guys, this is, this is the joy in ministry. And this is why I believe that disciple making is not only so good for your people, but it's good for you. <laughs> because this is what brings joy in ministry. This is what keeps you from being burned out. This is what keeps you, uh, a, a reinvigoration of your passion is because you know you're investing in people. I mean, if you're just a program manager, that's going to get old really fast. And that's when you start operating not in the spirit, but in the flesh. And you're just running people through and running over people that are in your way. And at the end of the day, you, people, you know, pastors burn out, uh, or they, or they flame out because of some kind of secret sin or whatever, because nobody's looking in their life and they're not opening their life up to anybody. Um, so the question, I guess, is do you love your people like that? Do you, do you love your people? Are you invested in your people? Do they know that you love them and are invested in them? Um, so what we're going to talk about is how do you move from just being religious activity to relational investment? A lot of leaders, spiritual leadership can fall into religious activity. You know, I go to visit the hospital. You know, I go get sermon preparation. I have to sit through some board meetings. I have to do some planning. I have to deal with staff training. I got to, you know, I got to do a lot of these religious activity things, but I may not be investing in people. Um, for some reason, uh, there is a resistance by many pastors to relational investment. It's really interesting, you know, when I talk to pastors about this, um, I get a lot of pushback. Well, what do you mean? You know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and I'm preaching and I'm leading and da 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 and I really don't, you know, and, and then all of a sudden here come all the re- list of reasons why they're not doing that. In fact, I just had a conversation last night. Uh, with a group of guys and we were talking most one guy was talking about his pastor and how he had written a book and la 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 and so I just said well does he invest in anybody personally he's like well I don't know and I think that could be common uh, you know I, I write a book and preach a series on it you know uh, but am I day in and day out you know investing in people um the Apostle Paul put it this way, What you have heard and seen in me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will teach others also. So that's really the pattern, right? That's what Jesus did. He took what he had. He invested in the 12. The 12 invested in the 72. We talked about that yesterday. So the same idea is here. It was Jesus to the 12, to the 72, to the others. Same thing is happening in 2 Timothy 2, to Paul, to Timothy, to faithful men, to others. That's four generations deep. And so that's what that's what we're aiming at is being movement capital. List. Yeah. Is it possible to, to do the relation, relational investing while, while you're doing the activities list? Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, you can't just stop every, you know, <laughs> everything, right? I mean, you, you have, you've got work to do. So you've got staff to lead, you've got programs to manage, you still have those. You can't just gut your church of any organizational program. Uh, you've got sermons to prepare, you've got uh, funerals and weddings and all these other things. The problem is, though, uh, when that's all you're doing and there's no relational investment going on. So you have to have that relational investment piece. And by the way, uh, as goes the head, so goes the body. And so if you are not relationally investing, but you stand up on Sunday and say, everybody needs to be relationally investing on somebody, it's very clear to them that you really aren't doing what you tell other people to do. And so uh, they're just not going to do it. They're just going to say, yeah, okay, that's just talk. But when you say, this is what I'm doing, this is who I'm meeting with, this is stories come out of that, well, all of a sudden people go, oh, well, if the pastor's doing it, well, then I guess I need to get on board with doing that. You know, the moral authority to challenge your people to make disciples comes from your example, not just from your words. Okay? So you have to be able to set that pace for your staff, for your leaders. I look at my staff all the time and say, listen, nobody in this room is busier than me. Nobody. So if I can carve out time, you can carve out time. And uh, I said, by the way, this is what we get to do for a living, right? You know, I mean, we get to choose our own schedule. Who set your schedule? Well, you set your schedule. So you just set your schedule. To, I'm kind of getting a little bit ahead of myself here. I get lathered up. Uh, so let's 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 look at some excuses. And I'm already kind of headed into the next. I, I get pushback from pastors when I talk about this. So here's some common excuses. First one is I don't have time, right? And that gets me into my talk about um, you know who set your schedule. You know, busyness is not a reason. It is an excuse. And uh, so we have to um, we have to take control of our time. I, I truly believe that if Jesus Christ said make disciples and I'm going to answer to Jesus for how I made disciples. I don't think when I stand before him one day and he evaluates my ministry that I could say, you know, Jesus, I was going to get around to that. But man, I was so slammed at work. Do you think that's going to fly with him? Well, Craig, you know, I know. You were really busy. Just forget about that. I don't think that's how that's going to roll out. So maybe that's just fear of God. I don't know. (laughs) Just trying to be obedient. But I'm like, okay, I need to be sure I'm doing what he told me to do. And that is uh, making disciples. And so uh, you need to carve out time to do that. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Another one is I've never been discipled before. Uh, and I hear that a lot. Well, you know, I can't really disciple anybody because I've never been discipled. And so it's kind of this this cycle of, well, I can't do anything because nobody's ever done that to me. The reality is very few pastors have been discipled by anybody. Uh, I was very fortunate that I had men in my life. I told you about those three businessmen in Oklahoma City that showed me how to invest in people, invest in my life. And I'm thankful, so thankful for that. Um so I realize that that's, that's something special that God's given to me. Most pastors have never been discipled. They never saw their pastor disciple anybody. They loved God, so they were told to go to seminary. They went to seminary. They never had a, a seminary professor disciple them or talk to them about disciple making. They graduate. They do what the pastor rock stars are doing, which is preach and lead programs and try to grow their building. And disciple making isn't even in the equation. Uh, and so when they, they see this, they go, wow, you know, I've never been disciples, so therefore I can't disciple anybody. But, uh, but that would be like saying, uh, well, let me just ask a question. How did you learn to be a parent? 
right? You had a baby, or your wife had a baby, right? And uh, you're all of a sudden a father or a mother. If you've never been a parent before, how did you learn to be a parent? Somebody tell me, how did you learn? What? You, yeah, you just started, you just did it, right? Oh, you were parented. Okay, good. What else? On the fly, as you go. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second so that you can hear a brief message from our sponsors. Here they are. Wouldn't it be great if someone who knew what they were doing, who actually had proven results, would just share with you exactly how to make disciples? Hi, I'm Doug Burrier, a decision scientist and a real-life disciple maker. This year, I'm discipling six of my neighbors. That's crazy. They don't even go to our church. My friends and I made 1,392 disciples last year. So if you're tired of hearing the same old blog and keynote messages, droning on about the why, the need, and the theory, I want to invite you to hear the simple how-tos that have bunches of churches and hundreds of people making thousands of disciples all around the world. How to recruit, how to get them to love reading the Bible, how to transform them, how to run a meeting, like a real proven agenda, how to make individual disciples in a group setting, how to give people the wonderful, abundant life that God promised them. This is what I found in sustainable discipleship. It's not materials, it's not another program. It's a simple, repeatable set of how-tos. If you're ready for something proven, practical, and different, visit sustainable-discipleship.com. That's sustainable-discipleship.com. The team will be happy to share with you everything God shared with them. All right, let's get back to the episode. Doctor Spock. Doctor Spock. <laughs> I read some books. Okay, what? You made lots of mistakes. Yeah, he asked people, "Hey, what do I do?" <laughs> you have somebody on the hotline. Hey, my kid is melting down. What do I do? So, how do you spiritually parent? Same thing. Uh, you you're just in it. You know, I don't, I never heard anybody say, well, I've never had a child before, so I really don't think I should have any children because, you know, I mean, we just, we know that biologically. Uh, the same thing is true. You know, there are more resources now for, to help you be a disciple maker than they ever have been. And there are examples of pastors that are doing it. Uh, so, um, I just don't think that that's much of an excuse anymore. I think that, uh, we have to say, look, um, if you can find someone to invest in you, that's great. If you can find a pastor, a disciple-making pastor close to you, say, hey, can I hang out with you? That's great. But that's what the National Disciple-Making Forum is for. That's what Flashpoint that we do is for, is to get you around other disciple-making leaders and learn from them. And uh, I think that's that's very, very helpful. Another one is I invest in people through my preaching. I hear that a lot. Uh, I disciple through my preaching. It's true to Avery Willis that he said, Believing that is like equivalent to going in the nursery and squirting milk on the baby. <laughs> Did y'all hear that? Oh, that's great. I'm going to have to remember that one. <laughs> Squirt the milk on everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's good milk. I sprayed it out all over the place. That's right. You know, uh, Jesus preached, right? He preached to large crowds. But I told you uh, last week that about halfway through here, he spent four times as much time with a few as he did with crowds. So Jesus clearly prioritized relational investment over public preaching. Now, let me just kind of uh, walk through this a little bit. While preaching and counseling is really important, it cannot take the place of disciple-making or personal investment. Preaching is unilateral. I preach to you. Disciple-making is back-and-forth conversation. Preaching is information. Disciple-making is transformation. 
Uh, preaching is about content. Disciple making is about character and competencies. Uh, preaching happens in the building. Disciple making usually happens outside the building. Preaching tells a man what to do. Disciple making shows a man what to do. Preaching is in the pew training. Disciple making is on the job uh, training. In preaching, you're accountable to deliver God's word. In disciple making, the other person is accountable to obey the word that God has given them. Preaching educates leaders. Disciple making equips Leaders, preaching can't be reproduced, but disciple making is intended to be reproduced. So there are some distinguishing characteristics between preaching and disciple making. Jesus did both. He did both very well. He spent more time disciple making than he did preaching. So the point is, is it important for you to preach? Yes. Is it important for you to preach well? Yes. But is it so important that you should spend all week on your sermon and neglect individual investment? No. No. If you're spending 20 hours on one sermon, you're wasting half that time. I think I do about 6 to 10, max 10 hours of preparation for that. But I'm leveraging the rest of it in leading our team and investing in people. And, uh, and you know, uh, some of you may, may do it shorter than that. I, uh, it takes me work. I have to work at preaching, you know. So, um, but I think that uh, you need to be sure you have that priority. Here's another thing: it's not my personality or my passion. I have some guys who go, "Well, you know, okay, I know that Jesus did that, but that's not really my thing." You know, I, I'm more of a leader up top thing, or I'm more of a preacher thing. I'm not. Re- I'm, that's just not who I am. I'm just not. I'm just not wired that way. And again, I just go back to the. Uh, the standing before Jesus, you know, I, mean, I just play that scenario out. Jesus, you know, I'm just not really wired that way. That really wasn't my spiritual gift, you know. I just, again, I don't think that that's going to fly uh, very much at all, you know. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, "Preach the word." Second Timothy two, Second uh, Timothy four two and verse five. He said, "Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." What's interesting is when preachers look at that passage, they go, "Preach the word." Yeah, man. See, I got to give all my attention to preaching, but they neglect the rest of it. Rebuke, reprove, correct. Well, yeah, you can do some of that in preaching, but that's most. Mostly life on life. Hey, hey, why are you doing that? Knock it off. Hey, what, well, you got a problem here. Let's, let's work through that. Let's get into God's Word. Let's fulfill the full ministry. Preaching alone is not fulfilling your full ministry. Uh, it's a part of it, but it's not all of it. And here's another one I, I get a lot is, um, I can't show favoritism to just one group. Uh, I've had a lot of pastors say, well, you know what? I can't do that because, man, the minute I start discipling just a few people, other people are going to say, well, why are you hanging out with them? You know, and then that's showing favoritism and you can't show favoritism. So basically, I can't really get close to anybody so that I keep everybody at bay. Um, that's just bad thinking, okay? Uh, again, not like Jesus, not like Paul, not like any of the apostolic leadership. Uh, I'm not sure where we get it. I had a pastor tell me one time, he said, Craig, you need to keep the desk between you and your staff at all times so it's easier to fire them that way. It was like one of, I was a young seminary student. I thought that was bad advice then. I think it's really bad advice now. In fact, that guy's not even in the ministry anymore. Um, 
but you know, I I think that you have to cl- understand that Jesus clearly identified emerging leaders and he invested. Almost every church recognizes leaders and emerging leaders. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Every church has got some level. You got elders, you got deacons, you got staff, you've got uh, high value, high capacity volunteers, and and they would expect that the pastor would lead leaders. I've never met a church that didn't expect some degree of that. And so I think that's a good place to start. It's a good place to start is just start with your leaders. I mean, when when we went to Colleyville, first thing we did was I said, okay, I've got staff members and I've got some key leaders. I'm going to start discipling them. And I started investing in them and then getting them trained to multiply. And then as they multiplied, then I multiplied also. Um, so I think you can you can easily start there. Uh, and move forward. You know, and, and I realize that in some situations people might uh, feel like there's favoritism. I, I've never run into that. Honestly, I've been a pastor in two churches, one for 11 years and one for nine years. I've never once had anybody say, well, why are you spending time with them? Not one time. Not one time. Let me give you some do's and don'ts. Okay. First off, uh, don't start casting vision about disciple making immediately. Uh, do start making disciples immediately. So I think a big mistake pastors do is they go, man, I'm fired up. I just went to the top banking forum. I'm so going to start my preaching sermon next Sunday. I'm going to do an eight-week series on disciple-making. I would say, er, hit the brakes, pull the cord. Don't do that. For a lot of reasons, don't do that. Number one, if you're preaching about it but you're not doing it, you lose credibility, and then you've already fired that shot. So, So hold off on preaching about it. Just start discipling somebody. That's the best. I hope that if you're motivated to do anything, you're just motivated to say, God, give me one person that I can disciple and and start there. Okay? Don't start preaching. There is a time for preaching about it, but it's not now. Uh, number two, don't uh, turn disciple making over to a staff person. Lead the charge yourself. So don't say, well, yeah, I'm really into disciple making, so I'm going to hire a discipleship person, and they're going to take care of all that for me. Eh, that's never going to work. What the head does, the body follows. And if you talk about you cannot delegate certain things, okay? You can't delegate certain areas of ministry. You have to lead it. And disciple making is one of those things. You have to lead by example. Now, you may have a discipleship person on your staff that, that is working to develop, you know, more leaders and so on, but you have to be also engaged in leading by example. Uh, number three, don't do a mass sign up. Don't go, man, anybody that wants to be discipled, raise your hand or check the card or check the box. You know, go online and register. Don't do that. At least not at the beginning. Do not do that. You're not ready. You're not at that stage yet. You just figured out the product and the process and you're, but you haven't done anything yet. So you have to do it first. There will be a time for that, but not now. Uh, number four, don't underestimate the power of a few men who walk with God. Do prioritize reaching and training men. So don't say, well, you know, this is a lot of time. What if I invest in this guy and then he goes to the XYZ church? Or what if I invest in this guy and then they never, he never multiplies or she never multiplies? And by the way, all those things will happen. Okay. Uh, I just, I just got a, while I was here, I got a call from a guy that I've been spending time with. I discipled him. Uh, he sends me a note and goes, hey, we bought a new house. Guess what? House isn't in our neighborhood. So I know where this is headed. I'm like, man, I just wasted. You know, I, my flesh side goes, I just wasted all that time with him. 
But then my other side goes, no, Craig, you've invested in his life. He's better for it. God's going to use that in his life. And so that's just the way it is. You know, uh, if Jesus had one guy that didn't work, right? If the Apostle Paul, how many times did Apostle Paul list guys in the Scripture that failed, right? I mean, he's in there forever. You know, this guy was a loser. You know, right? Uh, I mean, wow. Uh, you know, this is going to happen. You're going to have people that you invest in and they turn on you, they leave, they do other things. That's okay. But that should not kinder you. That's a small percentage of those that you will invest in will make a difference. And who knows, maybe that one guy that left and went to another church, he's going to start making disciples there and you're going to multiply your effort in another church and that's kingdom work. So that's good. Okay? Um, so uh, don't underestimate that. Okay, so let me give you uh, a couple of uh, quick steps here uh, to go through. Uh, that I think will help you. I said, don't do a lot of those things. Here's some things to do. Number one, select the right person. Um, I remember a businessman telling me, uh, Craig, uh, you just need to pray for God to bring you one man, and uh, then you then you disciple the guy that God brings to you. I remember um, when I was just starting in this, I was pastoring in Oklahoma City, and I was convicted. I was, I was urgent. I was ready for change. And so I prayed. I said, God, um, uh, just bring me one guy. And so one sunny night, uh, I'm walking down the hallway of our church, and a guy walks in the door I never met before. And so I said, hey, uh, my name's Craig. He said, hi, my name's Gibson. And so we met. He was a young guy, just got out of college. And uh, I just kind of felt prompted right then to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to start meeting with a group of young guys and reading the Bible and pray and just asking God to, um, you know, move in our hearts. Would you like to be a part of it? He goes, yeah, sure. So I started meeting with him and two other guys. And early in the morning, we would we went through some material and we'd pray and we memorize scripture and we read the Bible. We hold each other accountable. And um, Gibson ended up really growing spiritually, started leading in the church. He moved on to staff role. Uh, he was a staff for a while, moved off to seminary, went to Southern Seminary, uh, graduated from there. Now he's a church planter in Philadelphia and planting churches and making disciples and just multiplying greatly. One day, uh, he and I were talking about their first meeting. And I said, man, I remember when you walked in the door and we met in the hallway. He goes, yeah, I remember that. He said, but you know, I don't know if you know the rest of the story. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, I had never been to that church before. He said, and I was driving down the street and I'd been praying for God to bring me somebody that would disciple me. And he said, as I drove by the church, the Spirit of God just said, you need to pull in. So he said, I pulled in. I didn't know anybody. I parked. I got out of the car and I walked in the door down the hallway and I met you there. And you said, hey, you want to meet with me? And, you know, when I think about that, I think, man, I was praying, God, bring me a person. But he was praying, God, give me somebody to disciple me. And so I'm just saying that as you pray, which that still moves me, that story still moves me because I'm, I'm so proud of him and what he's doing. Um, if you will just pray, God, bring me a person, God will do it. He's already prepared. The people in your church are dying for this. They are dying for it. For somebody to show them what to do. I mean, they've heard sermons, but they don't know what to do. And if you will just pray, God, who do you want me to invest in? And show me who that person is. Look for fat people, okay? Faithful, available, teachable. Uh, so look for that. Look for people that are responsive. We call them poppers. People that, you know, they're always at church. They're, man, they're hungry. They got their Bible open. They're asking spiritual questions. These are the kind of people you want to go to. 
faithful men, reliable people, people that are spiritually hungry, people that you're not trying to convince they need to walk with God. These are the people that are like, feed me. Be Move toward those that where the Spirit of God is already moving in their heart. Okay? If you try to disciple a guy that's like this, doesn't see any need, you, you may be wasting your time. Pick a tool uh, is another thing. Uh, you need to pick a, a, a some type of tool or, you know what I mean by tool, some type of curriculum or resource that you're going to use to multiply. I would encourage you, there are scads of those out there. Uh, there are probably lots of tools available uh, here at this conference for you to peruse and look at. I would encourage you to have in mind what is the 3D, right? So devoted, developing, deployed. So what are the components? So the things that I said are were important to us is I, we believe Jesus taught them how to walk with God, how to reach their world, and invest in a few. Um, and Randy Pope, when he said just focus on three things on last night, those were the exact same three things that he mentioned. Not in those same words, but the same content. So you might say, okay, what tools help me train a person how to walk with God? What tools help me train them how to reach their world? And what tools train me, train someone on how to invest in another person? And then, you know, go for those tools. Pick a tool. There won't be the perfect tool out there. So just pick one you can live with and then go to work, right? Uh, if you're going to build a house, you got to have a hammer. You gotta have a tool. And that tool will be what they will use to multiply, uh, with other people. Okay? Uh, number, number three, guard your time. Disciple making isn't urgent, but it is important. You understand what I mean by that? You've heard the, the whole, uh, quadrangle about the urgent and important. We tend to do with things that are urgent and important. Right? Gotta be done now. But there are things that are important, but they're not urgent. Uh, they need to be done, but nobody's pushing you to get it done today. Disciple making tends to fall in that category. It's very important, but we don't often see the urgency of it. So you need to create a sense of urgency. Say, you know what, I'm going to carve out time in my day, carve out time. So if you start with a person, you say, when can you meet? And then you try to adjust. The good thing is most pastors are flexible. I mean, I can adjust my schedule if I have to. And uh, I think that's that's important for you to do that. Uh, number number four, I think that's number four. Uh, disciple in stages. Uh, what I mean by that is, I we have several tools that we take people through. We're developing our own tools right now. There'll be three books, three uh, in, in a set. And so I usually start off with something that is only a few weeks. And uh, it'll have scripture memory. It'll have we're meeting together, maybe three to five weeks long, and and I that that completes that tool. The advantage of that is this: if you get somebody who goes, man, yeah, I really want to be discipled, and then two weeks into it, he's not memorizing the scripture, he can't show up, he doesn't have anything done, that kind of thing. You know, if you're if you're committed to a 28 week tool, this is going to be a long 28 weeks. In fact, you're going to have to cut him loose halfway through or even the first quarter of the way through because he's not he's not with you. But if you if you have a shorter tool on the front end, you can assess that. You can kind of get him through that first three weeks or the first five weeks. So you know what? That was great. Uh I, you know I don't think that you're really your time is really allowing you to move forward. So let's just kind of call call this good for now. And then when you feel like you're more available, come back to me and we'll we'll pick up where we left off. That seems to be a, a natural break. So I've just kind of learned that from doing it a while. It's nice to have those kind of early on natural breaks um, so that if somebody's not with you, they can depart with 
face, you know, saving face, so to speak, and you can cut that person loose to start with somebody that really is hungry. Does that sound callous to say that? Uh, it's just, it's just kind of practical. Yeah. Yeah, I, the issue is not how, how many is in the group when you meet. The issue is how many people can you follow up outside the group? Because disciple making isn't just meeting in the group. It's also meeting with that person, going to his office, meeting him for lunch, uh, dealing with his family problems. So I don't have, I, I can't handle a whole lot of that just because of time constraints, right? So, uh, I've found that three plus me is a great number. Um, the reason why if it's two plus me and then one guy can't meet that week, then you just have you and the other guy. But then you're like, well, do we keep moving forward then? Cause we missed that guy. Do I need to make him up later? And it just seems to be better if you have three, if one guy misses out, you still got the other two going, you move on forward and that other guy's got to catch up. Um, so I've, I've found the optimal for me is three people plus me, um, but I've met with guys one on one. One year, I was so frustrated because every time I try to get a group together, one well, guy, that guy's in Chicago this week. Well, this guy's over in LA this week, you know. And so I said, okay, forget it. Enough with that, because it was getting real disjointed. So I just, I'm just going to meet with individuals, and I did that for a while. But now I'm kind of back to a group. Uh, so that's the optimal. But I think you just have to figure out how much bandwidth do you have. You know, if you're retired and you got a lot of time on your hands, you might be able. Take on six. That'd be great. But if you have a lot, if you have a lot of demands on your time, you may only be able to do a smaller number. It's okay. Uh, just what you feel like you can do outside the group. How can you shepherd this person? Um, uh, so disciple in stages. Uh, let me give you a couple more. Take them with you. Uh, David Gwynn, who was a guy that, that uh, was a great disciple maker, uh, he, um, he always had a guy with him. When he was discipling, uh, you just whatever ministry he was doing, he always had a guy with, him, always had a college student with him, and so I encourage you to do the same thing as you invest in people, take them with you. If you're doing ministry related stuff, if you're just going to the ball game, if you're going to go go do something, to say, hey, come along with us, come along with us, you know, try to involve them in all the things that you're doing. You're going to watch a game at your house, hey, come on over, we'll grill out and we'll watch the game together, you know, the, just that that time that's not in the group is really important. So the better, more you can fold them into your life, uh, the better. Um, and then I would say one other thing is just expose them to evangelism opportunities early on. Um, you're wanting to train them in evangelism. Expose them to you sharing the gospel, you going out uh, early on in the process. Um, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, in 2011... I was reflecting on the focus of my life and what I was doing. I tried it at the end of the year. I go back and I read through my journal and just what God has said to me for that year. And then I just do some evaluation. You know, am I doing what I need to be doing and uh, doing some reflection? And, um, you know, our staff knows that one of my favorite verses is John 9, 4. It says, we must do the will, the work of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no man can work. I think that means a lot to me because I grew up in rural West Texas and uh, farmers have to get out there and they'd have to work because when night came, they couldn't work anymore. Now, of course, they got combines with big floodlights. They can work all night. But there was a day when you had to work while it was day. And uh, there's a sense of urgency. Night is coming a lot sooner than you think. 
And if you're going to get it done, you got to get it done now. Um, and I wrote some things down in my journal that I just wanted to read to you. I said, if I pour my life into buildings, they will eventually be torn down. If I pour my life into projects, they will come to an end. If I pour my life into goals, they will become obsolete. If I pour my life into fame, I will soon be forgotten. If I pour my life into accomplishments, they will fade. If I pour my life into money, it will be spent. If I pour my life into possessions, they'll belong to somebody else. If I pour my life into experience, they will become distant memories. If I pour my life into organizations, they will change. If I pour my life into products, they will disappear. If I pour my life into benevolence, it will be temporary. If I pour my life into pleasures, they won't last. If I pour my life into wisdom, it will be surpassed. If I pour my life into entertainment, it will leave me empty and self-absorbed. But if I pour my life into knowing Jesus and training men to do the same, then what I do in this life will never fade from the earth and will echo into eternity. I keep that in front of me. Because you know, you, you're going to pour your life into something. And, and everything else that we pour our life into except for people is a waste of time. And you don't want to waste your life. Amen? So, um, so we're going to take a short break here. Uh, after the break, uh, we're going to, I'm going to, I'm ask, uh, uh, Chris Moody. Chris Moody here is pastor at, uh, First Baptist in Beaumont, Texas. And he is a disciple maker, uh, and really transitioned his church from being a very traditional downtown dying church into a now growing, thriving, disciple-making church. Um, he's going to show you his scars, and he's got stories for them. No, don't show the scars. <laughs> no, but uh, he's got a great story, and I wanted you to hear. He will also be on the panel uh, that we'll have at 1230 today. But I wanted you to hear some of his story about how he did that. And he went from religious activity to relational investment. I wanted you to hear how that worked in his context. So we're going to take about a... How long is our break? Anybody know? What's that? 9.45? Am I starting early? Am I stopping early? Oh, well, we got more time. All right, I thought 9.15. All right, well then... Forget that. We're going to have uh, Chris come on up now. Right. Y'all give a big hand clap uh, to Chris Moody. Thank you. you Thanks, Craig. Uh, my name is Dr. Christopher Moody. I'm the lead pastor of the First Baptist Church in Beaumont, Texas. been there nine years. I am the subject matter expert for the second theological installment there at the Seminary 530, for those of you who took, took a master's. Uh, I am uh, assistant professor who also has oversight of about 20 other professors for the seminary. And my call, my claim to fame is not a preacher, not professor, it's disciple maker. Um, I, I got led to Christ through Campus Crusade for Christ uh, in the early 90s. And in that time, it took me about three or four years to realize that churches did not see ministry as take non-disciples, make them... Followers of Christ who through training can become follower, lead others to become followers of Christ. And then on Sunday, because you've experienced the risen Christ in your personal life and through your, your ministry, disciple making life, you, 
you sing his praises on the weekend and then repeat. That's what I thought church was. Church was making disciples who make disciples, reproducing, 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 reproducers, training up trainers, comforting comforters, right? Just this recycling ministry of taking your mess and turning it into a message. I thought that was ministry. I thought that was church. And then went to uh, Texas A&M University and at the, those years there, I, God called me in a ministry and, and the first church that I took as a associate pastor was Central Baptist Church there. And after about two or three Southern Baptist churches, I began to realize that the churches I was a part of were were doing disciple making on the fringes in some sort of remnant of the church. That there was maybe three or four that were doing it intentionally, but the rest were, if there was any disciple training, it was a class, it was haphazard, it was uh, accidental. And so fast forward uh, through a seven-year church plant, um, I I got to the point where I was like, well, we got to start at the beginning. And so we did a church plant outside of Dallas after about seven years, very, very healthy disciple-making church. And to start from scratch, any church planters in the room? To start from scratch in many ways is much easier. You start with a blank page and you say, we're going to make disciples who make disciples and then everything else fits in that. But most of you in your context are where I'm at. About nine years ago after the church plant, First Baptist Church of Beaumont called. My wife says they, they, they said the dreaded word. They said, we need help. And that, that, that stroked the chord in my heart. Um, at the very, very front end, I'm, I'm trying to put this in a short, a short version here, uh, at the very front end, uh, in order to say yes to disciple making, which took about three or four years. It was a grassroots thing. It always is a grassroots thing. You can't program it. You can't package it. You can't buy it at Lifeway in a box, right? You can't launch it as some movement of mass uh, production. It has to be a seed planted like a farmer, and then you got to till it, and you got to wait, and you got to wait, and you got to wait. And then it harvests. For us, the harvest came about the three- to four-year mark. But early on, um, as you've heard said last night and as you've heard from Craig over the last uh, couple of days, uh, you, you start with you discipling as a leader. And then for us, it was saying no to things that were re- religious activity that got in the way of relational investment. There are some obvious ones that you do that get in the way of this. Religious activities that get in the way of relational investment. You start with your own life. And the beauty of starting as a new pastor to church, you can tell search committees and staff that this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach God's word and I'm going to be a disciple maker. And any time that's left over, I'll fit in a few things, but I can't do everything. So we've got to start saying no. I love how Steve Jobs said that about Apple computers. He said they were more more proud of what they said no to than what they said yes to. And I think we're in that day where this has gotten so thick that this has to, in order to say yes to it, you got to say no to religious activity. So, so what are some of those religious activities? <clears throat> the obvious ones that we could say no to is anything that wasn't gospel-centered. Uh, the church, <clears throat> this is crazy things I had to say no to. <clears throat> the church had a large Mother's Day Out program, First Baptist Church of Beaumont had a 40-year-old Mother's Day Out program. I just started asking simple <coughs> but bold, simple but bold questions. Has anybody come to faith through the Mother's Day Out program? Has anybody grown in their faith through the Mother's Day Out program? They could not say even one. <coughs> they said, well, maybe 10 years ago, 
I heard this story. I'm like, whoa, okay. <clears throat> so it took a few months, but we eventually, our Mother's Day Out program needed to go. We had a, we had a, a throwback to the 1970s, uh, time of, of segregation, desegregation, <clears throat> where we had a, a kitchen staff of four black ladies who dressed up in their, like for the movie The Help, it was such a throwback and, and so inappropriate in my mind where they dressed up in their outfits in Southern Baptist Church and they, four nights, four afternoons and nights a week, you could get a meal. So we had a full-time kitchen staff of four and it was creating just one more religious activity. You had to, you, you should come up on Tuesday night because they have, you know, they, they, they serve snickerdoodle, literally, and they have really nice rolls, and you can come up and you can spend time and go to a committee meeting. Hey, <laughs> exciting. And it was this, it was this religious activity that didn't just get in the way of disciple making, it actually looked like who we shouldn't look like. And so we, we got, we had two full-time, uh, cooks and two part-time cooks. And, uh, they, they weren't a part of the faith family, and it meant it just had such a bad picture of 1970s issues of segregation. So that was an easy no. Uh, on and on and on. Just meetings after meetings. So you can relate to some of this. 18 committees. 26 councils. That's religious activity. Right? That's a lot. Um, pastor before me, I, I called him and I said, what, 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 what things did you do? He said, no, no line. He said, 12 meetings a week scheduled always. Like I always could go. And he looked at his calendar. Always would go to these 12 meetings a week. And I'm like, meeting upon meet. That's death by meetings. And so it wasn't just, you start with yourself and then go to your church leadership and then look around and say, what, what is not gospel centered? And what is, what's the fat? What's the thick? What's the part of it that's just the, you, you can easily carve out. Then, um, and, and, for the next six, for that first six months, it was a lot of, hey, whatever your sacred cow is, we got to put it on the everything on the table, everything on the table. So go, go to the length of the sacred cow. What is that sacred cow of all sacred cows? And just be aware that here, I'm going to do it. 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 We're going to put it on the table. We're going to put it on the table. We're going to put it on the table. And then we put it on the table. And still, sure enough, a lot of people freaked. Um, you know, we we had. One thing that we had at First Baptist Church of Beaumont, 148-year-old church now, um, 148 years old, had five Southern Baptist Convention presidents, two sitting seminary presidents grew up in our church. Paige Patterson grew up in our church, Chuck Kelly at New Orleans. Uh, so, so significant church, Southern Baptist Convention leadership. It had gotten to the point where, um, you know, the... the, the the movement of the past became a monument, became a museum. When I stepped in, it was a museum. All right, literally on the fourth floor of the building, we had a museum quality museum. And, uh, that was a metaphor for the church. And so a lot of it was, that was necessary in order to become a disciple making church isn't just religious activity, but also religious monuments that we had to say no to. So there's a lot of saying no. Did people leave? You better believe. They left in the dro- in droves. We practice, this is a good word I've used in terms of change. If you're going to change and go towards a disciple-making model, a biblical model, right, you, you, you've got to practice brinkmanship. All right, pushing people to the brink without pushing them over the brink. 
Now, now let me, let me tell you one of the dynamics that's beautiful about it is this is not a quick fix, fast, go in and change a bunch of stuff. You have to start trimming the fat, but the change occurs through exponential change, which doesn't really set into place by till year three or four. Let me explain that. I, like Craig, disciple about groups of one on two or one on three, and I do two. So I disciple two groups of five or six guys total. And the first year, it was me and five or six guys and trying to trim the fat and streamline. Uh, we use books like Simple Church to do a lot of that. Like Tom Rainer, we just said no to a bunch of stuff. Alignment, you know, not that. By year two, that five, my return on the investment was about 30%. That, that five turned into about 12, right? By year three, that 12 turned into about 30, I think the number specifically was 34. We went from 12 to 34 men. So year three, we had 34 disciple-making men who God had changed their lives completely. And in that process, it was year three that at First Baptist Church of Beaumont, we started having women coming up to me. I can remember a handful of women saying, I don't know what you're doing in my husband's life, but I want it. Do you have any women who can, I think y'all call it, we call them spiritual running partners. Can I have a spiritual running partner? And I'm like, yes. And so by that point, the Lord had led to us a trained Campus Crusade ex-staff member, a trained Navigator staff member. We had my wife. She had started discipling the year before that. She was on her third generation of disciple makers. So uh, typical of the ladies, uh, their exponential growth was much greater. By year six, we had over 200 trained spiritual trainers in our church all right out of that over 200 around a hundred of them were on their second if not third generation of repetition now year nine we've we've got probably close to 400 that are doing it on average and consistently it's just exponential now for for our church this is what we did year one and two a lot of we just started moving our people from religious activity to relational investment. So this this is a good one for me to give a testimony on because of how many things we had to say no to. Right? We had we had five or six prayer meetings going on, and only a handful of people were showing up to it, to any of them. So we consolidated to one main one, and we we actually prayed, and it was relational prayer. So the, another thing we did in the change. Is, in, is we move to language related to relationships. So if it was a prayer meeting, or if it was a, we, we now only have two committees, praise the Lord. Uh, but those committees are relational. So I think we're out of time. But that's, that, that, that's nuts and bolts for how to transition, um, through this process. Think of it, let me give you this image. Think of it like, I just saw this in my driveway yesterday, uh, leaving, leaving town. I have grass coming up in the middle of my, Six-inch-thick concrete driveway, grass coming up. How, how did it get there? A lot of time, a lot of pressure. Some seed fell in that crack. Or maybe, I don't know, I, I don't remember seeing a crack before. But somewhere, somehow, it got in there. And over time, it took the concrete of denominationalism, the concrete of religiosity, the concrete of traditionalism. And it cracks it. And disciple-making provides that kind of of where, you know, long-term weather where, where it, if you'll focus on relational investment, it'll eventually take that, that thing you'll say, it'll never change. That culture of this church will never change. People said that about First Baptist Church of Beaumont. 
I spoke at a chapel service at Southwestern Seminary and Paige Patterson said, here's Chris Moody. He's pastoring the hardest church in the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> I went, what an introduction, you know, no, no pat on my back, just a, hey, he's got a really tough job. Y'all need to listen to him, you know. Well, all of us do because people don't like change, but they're like diapers. They need changing often for the same reason, right? So change, it takes time, but it works. All right, thanks. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org, where you can also register for the next National Disciple Making Forum.